Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers Podcast with your host, Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers Podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics, including health, fitness, and training strategies, to name a few. If you enjoy the show and wish to support, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support the show, please head over to the show PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPO pod. Links to both of those can be found in the show notes. Also, consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform and on our video version of the show hosted on YouTube. For updates and notifications, please visit my social media channels at ZachBitter on Instagram, at ZBitter on Twitter, and at Zach.Bitter on Facebook. All right, now on to the next topic. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. And for this show, you're stuck with just me. We're going to do a listener Q&A. I've got a few questions that have come in over the course of the last few weeks that I thought are really interesting ones and kind of fun ones to go through. So we're going to hit those up in a bit here. Uh, Before that, though, I'd love to make a couple announcements, too, just to keep everyone kind of up to date and uh, offer up uh, a correction. Um, One is uh, in reference to, I believe, first came up in the episode that I did with uh, Dave Scott. We were talking about Dr. Dan Pluis and kind of what his intra-race nutrition strategy was or is. And uh, if you remember from either of those episodes, when we had Dr. Pluis on and when we had Dave Scott on, uh, Dan Pluis follows a a low-carb, high-fat approach. He does periodize things depending on where he is in training in terms of how much carbohydrate he does within that framework. But when we came to his race day, I believe he said that when he is on the bike, because Dan Pluis does like, you know, half Ironman and Ironman essentially are the two kind of target sports for him. So he's got the swim, the bike, the run in that order. And he said during our interview, I believe that he consumes up to 50 grams per hour while on the bike. And then while on the run, he consumes 50 grams total. So for someone like Dan, you know, the run for say a half Ironman, which is going to be a half marathon of like 13.1 miles is going to be you know, less than 90 minutes. So maybe it's not that big of a variance, but then when you go up to say like the Ironman, the full one was running 26.2, he's probably going to be running in under three hours, which is just going to be a little more of a stretch of time to spread out that 50 grams of carbohydrate. And I believe on the Dave Scott episode, I had just like generally said 50 grams per hour is kind of what he, ta- he, he targets as his intra race, intra competition, uh, carbohydrate fueling strategy. And uh, it turns out I was a little off on that. He does a little more on the bike, which makes sense. You can digest a little more when you're on the bike. You're a lot less likely to have digestive issues, uh, probably due to just less kind of shaking when you're on a more smooth plane. Uh, Also, probably due to a little bit of a better cooling effect as you're riding at faster, faster speeds, but with relative similar intensity that you wouldn't have as much issue digesting because there's less resources going towards cooling you if you're on a bike versus running. Um, and, you know, just Dan's general experience in terms of how his gut tolerates food at given points during the race. 
you also sometimes with these longer events like half Ironman, full Ironman, ultra marathons have a situation where it becomes more difficult to to consume foods the later you get in these as your your stomach kind of starts to grow weary of whatever it is you're eating. Uh, it's one of the biggest things that sideline people in these longer efforts is digestive issues near the end. And it's it's also one of the reasons why I like a low carb, high fat approach is I don't have to eat as much during the the race itself, which kind of limits that digestive issue. And I know kind of Dan's in that same same ballpark, but that's just to clear up that a little bit in case anyone listened to that and was wondering if there was a difference there where we, where we were off. But uh, that is where Dan is at at the moment. Um, some other stuff, just uh, in general for for the show uh, right now, I'm targeting trying to get about six episodes per per month up right now, which basically has me on like a two one week, one the next week. Uh, for for recording frequency and that's been a pretty good balance in terms of time and finding guests and doing things and also getting up you know enough shows to kind of keep people with a with a an episode in the hopper so uh, that's kind of the frequency I'm at right now I might start ramping it up a little bit during different points of the year when uh when I have more opportunity to record you know longer guest lists when I have more maybe nuance in my racing and training and things that I can share with everybody. Uh, but I want to say six per month is going to be kind of the target baseline to aim for going forward. And then when things heat up, I'll go above that, but I'm going to try to keep it no less than that. So for those interested in kind of recording frequency, podcast release frequency, that's kind of the, the general target right now. Um, one other thing that I wanted to share too is, uh, one of my sponsors, S-Fuels, has been working very hard behind the scenes the last few months to develop a opportunity for folks who want to kind of have a communal experience with running, cycling, and swimming in endurance sports, but are having a hard time finding it given the current circumstances with COVID-19 and less events getting off. Certainly a lot less big events where you have mass community and you know, interaction between big groups of people. So they're doing a new thing on, uh, they're, they're using Zwift and they're using uh, Zoom to essentially uh, create like a, a virtual stadium where you can join a bunch of people to do specific workouts along the lines of swimming, running, biking, as well as uh, target different kind of time trials and things like that too. So they have a really long list now of different like opportunities within that, but they're going to start launching uh, pretty quick here. So um, if you head over to uh, um, sfuelsgolonger.com, there's a lot of info on that. And I'll actually be leading a lot of some of the running workouts uh, on that too. So if you want to join me on some workouts, they are tailored to your ability level. So it'll be like, you know, you pick the workout you want to do and it will help guide you in terms of how hard you should be person based pushing based on your experience and where your current fitness is at. And then everyone can kind of do their thing all within that same kind of virtual community. So uh, feel free to go over and check that out. Uh, I think it's going to be kind of a fun setup, a fun virtual group training setup that they have going on over there. If interested in hanging out with me on some treadmill runs and, and ultimately I think we're going to have it structured in a way where you don't have to be on a treadmill either. You could, you know, essentially join in and do it outside or have it set up where it is, uh, it, there's, it's not necessarily a live participation, but it's a guided workout sort of a style that you can do at any time you're available. So you're not necessarily held hostage, whatever schedule time frame that we come up with over there, but that's sfuelsgolonger.com. 
uh, they call it their uh, sweat sessions or their VPR stadium. And uh, the, the, the website will direct you to all of that, all that good stuff there if you're interested. All right, folks, this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by a company named Elemental Labs. Elemental Labs is a company that has created an electrolyte powder that you can mix into your drink. The reason Elemental Labs began developing the product Element is because Rob Wolf noticed that his performance seemed to suffer when he was taking part in one of his favorite activities, jujitsu. And after a little problem solving, he realized that it was an electrolyte situation, specifically sodium. So he wanted to develop a product that gave him all the benefits of the electrolytes without all the additional sugars and fillers that you would find in traditional sports drinks. Element is packed with 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium, and comes in four flavors of orange salt, citrus salt, raspberry salt, and raw unflavored. So if you would like to up your electrolyte game, head over to drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO. That's drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO and place an order. All right, now back to the show. All right, let's jump into some of these questions that have come through uh, I'll also note if you have a specific question you'd like me to address, please feel free to shoot me an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com and I can put you in the hopper for a future Q&A. Um, I don't have Dr. Baker here any longer, so uh, <laughs> orthopedic surgeon related questions may not be very well advised to ask me <laughs> at this point in time, uh, but I'm sure Sean would be happy to fill you in on what he's got going on over on his MeetRx stuff if you're interested in, in asking him questions and things like that. I think he does a lot of daily type uh educational things over at, at meet rx so uh if you're looking for sean for cues um best to head that way unless you think i also have a good answer to it in which case feel free to ask um first question is hey zach i'm curious how you determined what your aerobic threshold is or how your aerobic threshold is at 155 beats per minute I am 40 years old and doing keto diet with maximum aerobic function training, which puts me at 140 beats per minute based on my maximum aerobic function formula, which is 180 minus your age. Thanks, Ryan. All right. So a few things, I'm just going to kind of lay out a few things before I answer how I came up with that heart rate range, because I think it is important to kind of understand a little bit of some variances here, because we're talking about a couple things here. We're talking about aerobic threshold. We're talking about a training strategy called maximum aerobic function. So when we're talking about developing the aerobic system, we're, we're kind of looking at this in a way where there's different intensities that kind of like introduce different physiological stimulus and by, by, by stressing those different areas, you, you stand to improve on them. So then it becomes a question essentially of when do I do what we would call kind of like an aerobic based run or a sub aerobic threshold effort? When would you do like an anaerobic threshold or a lactic threshold run? Uh, or where, when would you run faster than that? When would you run in between? Like, where are we placing these things? What is the order of operation? What is the volume to do these at? How do we split them all up? And, 
you know, I could do probably an entire podcast just looking at different training principles, different ways, different orders of operations, when to do what, how to do it and all that sort of stuff. Um, so I'm not going to go into like a ton of detail with that. Um, but if, if folks have questions about specific things within that, that they want me to address, I'd be happy to do that on a future Q and a too. Um, but first of all, like, let's just try to understand this maximum aerobic function type of stuff first. So essentially like the idea behind that is that a lot of people participating in endurance sport or essentially a lot of people who are kind of more new to structured training a lot of times we'll find them in this situation where if you look at kind of their development in what I would say are kind of like the three main areas in endurance training, they find themselves in a situation where they're underdeveloped in certain areas, which kind of create this like big gray area zone versus a small gray area zone, uh, which you kind of want to try to avoid from a performance standpoint. So if we think of it simply, you can think of it as like, there's like, a block of intensity that we consider like low intensity, which is essentially going to be below your aerobic threshold or at or below your aerobic threshold. Then you're going to have like another slice or another window where it's kind of moderate to high intensity. So it's above your aerobic threshold, but it's below your anaerobic threshold. And then you're going to have the line where you cross over your anaerobic threshold and you enter this, this, area of high intensity where you're primarily going to be tapping into muscle glycogen in order to execute that type of intensity. And what a lot of times we see is a lot of times we see folks who have an underdeveloped aerobic system. So that window in the middle where it's kind of moderate to high intensity is this big gaping window. And there's like this tiny little sliver on that first window of low intensity and this tiny little sliver on the window of high intensity. What we see in a lot of highly trained, like successful endurance athletes is the better they get or the further they get in their training program, the tighter that window gets between their aerobic threshold and their anaerobic threshold. So like what they end up having is they have this really large window that constitutes low intensity for them, a really tiny window between that aerobic threshold or the end of that low intensity window and the threshold for anaerobic. So they have like this really small gray area in the middle is maybe the way to think about it. And that, what that shows is that they developed this really, really strong aerobic base. And the reason why an endurance athlete would want to develop a really strong aerobic base is because the level of your aerobic fitness is a great tool to help to kind of determine what your performance is going to be like once you start doing the specific things to the race intensity you're going to do. So things like your stroke volume or the amount of blood that's transported, transported per stroke can, can get developed very well by developing your, your aerobic system. The enzymes that convert fat into energy get worked and developed during this system of training. Just blood volume and oxygen transportation capabilities in general are improved by building a strong aerobic base. Uh, so it's, it's considered the foundation of endurance sport. And it's the reason even someone who focuses primarily on aerobic fitness can benefit, or who focuses primarily on anaerobic fitness can benefit from developing an aerobic base in which they can later kind of place some of those more anaerobic, higher intensity workouts on. Uh, so what maximum aerobic function aims to do essentially 
is really, really develop that by bringing you all the way up to that crossover point where your body's going to start burning primarily glucose or exogenous carbohydrates and just working that system to make you better at oxidizing fat, uh, making that window of your, what is your low intensity really, really large or minimizing that middle gray area intensity uh, is, is kind of the goal there. And if you talk to like Dr. Phil Maffetone, who is kind of one of the pro biggest proponents of maximum aerobic function, what, what he's going to say too, is like, ultimately what you do is once you kind of have that fully developed, where you have that tiny window there in that gray area, then he recommends start doing some racing and essentially kind of getting your speed work or your intensity from doing a race itself. So like maybe you're showing up for like five K's and 10 K's on the weekend. And you're doing what a lot of people following a periodized training schedule would be doing in their workouts, but you're just doing them on race day. And then you're going to kind of fine tune your race day intensity by doing the exact activity that you plan on doing from a race standpoint. Um, and I think that makes some sense, especially if you kind of follow that, that, that parameter. Um, what, what I like to do in my own training, since my races tend to be like you know, sometimes hundred miles long and things like that. I'm not going to race myself into shape in most cases. I'm certainly not going to race hundred milers into shape. I might do a couple of them a year, a few of them a year at most. And I'm oftentimes going to have like those be kind of the peaking part of my training sessions or training phases and cycles. So um, it's pretty rare that I'm going to do a hundred miler just to kind of have fun. I'm going to be peaking for a hundred milers in most cases. I might do some shorter ultras as that, but it doesn't necessarily fill fit into the framework of racing into shape in most cases, because it's just such a long distance to be doing that for. There's like a lot of risk. Um, and I think a lot less reward when you kind of start taking that approach of uh, doing too many of those events. So for me, I like to look at aerobic threshold as kind of a target in my training of development in the early stages, mostly just because I'm going to be using the periodized approach uh, of training to a degree where I am going to be working specifically on these other systems of training during other parts of my training as well. So it just kind of fits a little bit more cleanly within the vernacular of that type of an approach that I also oftentimes default to aerobic threshold as kind of a term that I'll use in terms of what I'm focusing on in training. And the way I've come up with my aerobic threshold or the kind of number where I'm going to try to stay at or just below when I'm really developing my aerobic base is essentially by first understanding where my lactic threshold is or my anaerobic threshold is. If you know one of the two, you can oftentimes predict what the other one is pretty closely. If you're generally well-trained and fit, um, you can essentially subtract 20 beats per minute from what your anaerobic threshold or your lactic threshold is going to be. So I usually lean on that a bit to kind of determine where I'm going to target and come up. So when I came up with 155 beats per minute as my aerobic threshold, essentially I did that by discovering what my anaerobic threshold or my lactic threshold was and subtracted 20 beats from that. So if I went out and did say a race, that's about 60 minutes in duration and did it all out as hard as I could, as evenly paced as possible, uh, my heart rate average would probably be around 175 beats per minute. So in most cases, like around 60 minutes is going to be a pretty good indicator of where your lactic or anaerobic threshold lies. So if you can determine the intensity and the heart rate at which you are able to compete at a 60 minute time trial, you can get a pretty good look at what heart rate ranges you should be working at in terms of targeting your lactic threshold or anaerobic threshold. And by knowing that you can find out your aerobic threshold by just subtracting that 20 beats. 
if you're somebody who's really new to endurance sport or hasn't developed your aerobic, your aerobic system in any kind of structured way, you may want to subtract 30 beats at the start. Um, I think that that that's tightened up a little bit over the years uh, as they looked at like kind of the variance between well-trained and under-trained endurance athletes or beginners or advanced and things like that. So um, it's not an exact science and it, it likely won't be unless like we have a situation where everyone just has these numbers available to them on a readily easily to acquire uh, design, which I think we'll, we'll probably get to eventually. But right now, like in order to actually know that aerobic threshold crossover from a physiological standpoint, and then that anaerobic or lactic threshold point is to go into a lab and actually have like a, you know, a, a treadmill stress test done. And you can kind of get an idea of where those crossover points are by, by them studying your oxygen exchange and your blood and all that other stuff. So uh, that's the gold standard. If you can get yourself into a lab and find those numbers and have them print that out for you, you can structure a training plan around that with uh with, I guess, the peace of mind that it, your body literally spit out exactly what those areas are. Um, but in a lot of cases with racing and in endurance training in general, we're operating more on perceived effort ultimately, because eventually if you're going to say target a specific time or specific intensity for a specific distance, you're going to have to start training that specific thing in order to really fine tune that. So in my training, I use that aerobic threshold foundation building to kind of catapult me into whatever specific things I'm going to be doing to prepare for whatever race it is. So if it's a hundred miles, I might start out the same way as if I would prepare for a five kilometer with a lot of that aerobic threshold type work, building volume within that system. But ultimately, once I feel like I fully developed that, I'm going to start working on the specifics that I need to do to be ready for the intensities, the environment, everything it is I'm going to race. And that's where the big difference between say a 5k and a hundred miler is going to fall is in that uh, phase of training that you do after you fully developed your aerobic, the aerobic side of things. And the thing that gets maybe interesting about hundred milers and ultra marathons in general is just the relatively low intensity of race day compared to something like a 5k. So for me personally, like I might start out targeting aerobic threshold early in the plan and then address some things that are least specific to race day intensity, but are still things I think are valuable in improving my race day performance. Uh, I might actually move back to aerobic threshold as kind of a target near the end if it's say like a hundred mile race, because that just happens to be an intensity that's going to be very specific to what I'll probably be using on, on that day. Um, so that's kind of a, a bit of a long answer, a little more detailed answer around some of that stuff. But I, I do get a lot of questions about like using maximum aerobic function, using the 180 minus your age versus like your aerobic threshold in that sort of stuff. So I thought it maybe would be fun to kind of dive into that a little bit, a little bit more detail in terms of just heart rate training in general. I really like Joel Friel's stuff. So if you're interested in learning more about kind of like structuring your training around heart rate based intensities and leaning on that a bit as your guide. I think checking out his stuff is, is, is a great idea. Uh, ultimately my, my piece of advice is learn your perceived effort by using heart rate and things like that. So it's okay if you don't have an understanding of like, what does it feel like to run at my aerobic threshold? What does it feel like to run at my lactic or anaerobic threshold? What does it feel like to be in that middle zone between those two? If you don't have that baseline understanding of those from experience, then I think using things like heart rate can be a great tool to help you understand how those feel. 
But once you get a good grasp of how it feels, I think it's probably even better just to go out and run at that relative intensity based on your past experience. And then using heart rate and things like this as a post-workout analytical tool. Um, because what you're going to do for aerobic threshold and maximum of function or what you're looking for essentially is that your pace gets faster at that same heart rate. So for me, if my aerobic threshold is 155 beats per minute, if I go out the very beginning of a training plan and I'm targeting 155 beats per minute, you know, I might be running, let's say I'm running six and a half minute mile pace for that. What I'm going to be looking for that to, for, for what to happen if I'm doing it correctly is that that pace goes down over the weeks, but my heart rate stays the same. So my heart rate stays at around 155 beats per minute, but my pace starts moving down closer to six and maybe even gets under six minute mile pace for a little while there uh, near the end. And historically, that's kind of where I've usually plateaued, which is usually an indication for me personally as a good time to uh, say, okay, my aerobic, my, that, that first block in those three systems has been stretched out about as far as I can get it. Now it's time to move on race day specific type intensities um, or any intensities between that and race day specific intensity that I want to try to develop uh, before getting into the specifics. This episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by Fastic. Fastic is a free online phone app that helps you set up and structure the right fasting and or intermittent fasting program that is best for you based on your preferences and experience level. The Fastic team has 25 years of fasting experience and has created a platform that helps you stay on track with notifications reminders, and allows you to give and receive support from other users. You can also upgrade from the free trial to unlock things like food and drink plans that are right for you and educational support to help you understand how and why fasting works. Head over to your app store and download Fastic, that's F-A-S-T-I-C, and check it out. Or head to their website at fastic.com. Links to all of this can be found in the show notes. Now, back to the show. All right. So next question is, uh, hi, Zach. I'm curious how you determine whether to recommend someone to use a low-carb, high-fat approach to endurance versus a high-carbohydrate. Do you encourage all your coaching clients to follow low-carb, high-fat? Thanks, April. All right. This is a really good question because I think it's, something that oftentimes gets a little too, I don't want to say polarizing, although you could say that, but it gets a little too maybe binary where it's like you have someone who says, well, I advocate for moderate to high carbohydrate, or I advocate for low carb, high fat. And therefore, when someone comes to me with questions, I'm going to tell them everything that is good about the approach I like, and you kind of ignore the things that are potential, like pitfalls or ignore things that are potential like compromises by taking on that approach and uh, vice versa with the other side too. So oftentimes people walk away kind of thinking like, okay, one of these is right for everybody. Um, but I can't figure out which one it is because this person's saying it's this and that person's saying it's that. And both of them have a ton of people saying that they're right. So you end up in this situation where like, you, I think people are sometimes getting more confused. So uh, one thing I like to do is as a coach, I like to 
kind of lean on what I consider the parallels between coaching and teaching. Um, teaching is what I was trained to do. That's what I went to school for. It's what I got my degree in. It's what I did as my first career before kind of moving into being a endurance athlete and coach and, and kind of switching my career path a little bit. Uh, you know, so I like to lean on that, that relative strength, I think, and, and not be afraid to reach out to others if I don't know and to be comfortable letting someone know if I don't have an immediate answer for them with this sort type of stuff. Um, especially because for sports like ultra marathon, which is primarily what I'm coaching folks to do. Uh, it, there's the office of so much uncertainty about like what we do and do not do and like what's right and what's wrong. Uh, there's just a lot of gray area because there's just, it's hard to study what happens from mile 70 to mile hundred of a, of a hundred mile ultra marathon. So I try to lean on kind of some of the, the principles that were taught to me as an educator, which are one of the things you learn pretty early in school to be an educator. And certainly once you get into classrooms is that if you come into that classroom and your message is, all right, this is the way we do things. And if you do it any other way, if you even dare think outside the box, you are out, you will not perform well, you will, you know, not succeed. Uh, so, you know, it's kind of this like absolutist mindset that I sometimes see. And I try to avoid that as much as I can. I think the more you get into the context and the individual, the more kind of absolutist you can be with that person, because you just have more information about them, how they perform, how they feel, how certain things affect them. And you can work your way to a more concrete, absolutist approach. Um, but I think at the beginning, you have to really avoid that because you just don't have enough context as to where the individual is. Like if just some person decided, like if I got an email that said, okay, there's a person who wants you to coach them, what should they do from a nutrition standpoint? I'd have a ton of questions about what that person's trying to do, who they are, like what they've done historically before I even come close to answering that question. I mean, that person could be, a five kilometer Olympic athlete, or that person could be someone trying to run their first 50 miler who's only been running for a year. And these are just like massive range differences between that person and the other. So um, I think we have to start thinking more at the individual level when answering these type of questions versus trying to come up with some sort of like, this is the right way, do this all the time, no matter what. And if someone can't do it, then, um, you know, that's just not for them kind of a mindset. So when someone comes to me for coaching in general, uh, usually I don't even touch their nutrition right away unless that's something that they, they were very, um, that they really wanted to work on. If they sent me, say, hey, I want to hire you as a coach because I, I really want to work with you on the, the nutrition principles of things, you know, that's going to be maybe a little different situation. But most people who come to me for coaching, they're coming for, to me for like the coaching programming first. Uh, and then like, we'll get into the nutrition stuff at some point, no matter what, just because with ultra marathons and these all day events, you're going to be eating during them. You're going to be drinking them. You're going to be consuming electrolytes during them. So finding out what's going to work best for them, given their race and what work and, and what, you know, shows to bear food and training for them is going to be important in terms of getting them ready for race day and, and avoid mistakes and pitfalls and things like that. But there's different ways to do it, I think. And I like to let the person kind of decide what type of like eating strategies they've preferred historically, what's worked well for them historically, what foods work well for them, what ones don't and that sort of stuff. And if someone is like really 
unaware of that and want, wants me to help them, a lot of times what I do is I kind of lay out some of the different strategies that have been seen to work, uh, you know, in the sport that they're trying to do and kind of lay out where the pros and cons are to each of them and then let them decide like which one maybe matches them the best. So like an example, this would be like if I had someone come to me who they said, okay, I, I followed a moderate to high carbohydrate diet my entire life. Um, and when I, when I've trained historically, I've, I've progressed at a steady rate. Uh, my workouts go well. Typically I usually have good races, my energy levels, my sleep, my mood and stuff are all really good. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm coming to you because I want to see what your training philosophy is. You know, that person, I'm not going to tell them to switch to a low carb, high fat diet just because that's what I do. We're going to, we're going to look on, okay, well, seems like what you're doing nutritionally is working perfectly fine for you. So let's look at something that we can actually try to move the needle on. And if that becomes something that we need to address down the road, because it becomes to backfire on you, or you find out that it's no longer working for you, we'll do it then. But um, I don't know that you necessarily want to be trying to like, you know, change things that haven't been broken for lack of better words. And on the other side of it, you know, I'll have folks that come to me a lot of times who already follow a low carb, high fat diet or a keto diet, partly because like in the world of endurance coaching, you know, there's not a ton of folks out there who have a situation where they've done it for 10 years, like I have. So I, people do run understand. I think that like, if I've been doing it for 10 years and have had success doing it, I likely have a fairly good grasp of like kind of what is the right way and the wrong way where the pitfalls may be like I can probably help accelerate their their process in it if that's something they're interested in doing uh, so that they don't find themselves making mistakes that would have been easily avoidable by working with someone who's already kind of gone through the process before so that's where I think I may be valuable to folks like that is um, I've kind of gone through that I've tried a variety of different things within the context of low carb high fat to kind of see what works for me I've done it with tons of other people as well so they're just leaning on my relative experience within that world, I think, a lot of times. And for that person, a lot of times they started doing it for a reason. You know, they may come and say, okay, you know, what happened to me is I started ultra marathon running or triathlon uh, five years ago. And I realized pretty quick, no matter what I did on my daily eating habits, no matter how I fueled my workouts, I always ended up struggling to eat enough during the race to defend muscle glycogen. I'd always end up puking or having to stop to use a bathroom a ton of times or just simply not able to take in food at a certain point and then you just have this like this uh like regression in performance as the race goes on as you get closer to the point where your body's going to defend the amount of glycogen left and they're just unable to defend that muscle glycogen in a meaningful enough way to feel like they can finish a race strong that person, like, I'm probably gonna say, well, here's the pros and cons of using a, a high fat or a low carb, high fat approach. And it, it may be something that can potentially help you avoid having to eat as much during the race. And then you avoid the potential stomach issues, you avoid the potential, uh, you know, extra bathroom breaks that could cost you like boatloads of time. Um, and you can just avoid like this situation of bonking a little bit. So it really just comes down to kind of the person the person's range, what their experience is like. And I think the more context you have, the more likely it is you're going to find a situation that works well for the individual versus having like kind of a nutritional one sheet that you just hand out to everyone who comes to you and then say, Hey, this is the program, you know, figure it out or, or don't <laughs> kind of a mindset. 
Um, so that's kind of how I go about it. I try to like make that more of a secondary thing unless the person explains to me that this is one of the reasons I'm hiring you as a coach. Uh, in which case I'm going to work with where they're at. We're going to work with what's worked with them historically and change things as needed versus trying to kind of force a specific approach on someone for the sake of doing it, if that kind of makes sense. And, and, and to just as reference, I think like that's more important in a sport like ultra marathoning than it maybe is in some of these other sports where we have a lot of good science and research behind them. Um, and we have a lot of different context points in terms of like elite versus kind of middle of the pack to back of the pack, beginners, intermediates, advanced, and all that other stuff. Um, we're still kind of in the infancy, I think, of learning a lot of stuff when it comes to ultra marathon. So having options, I think, helps people stay comfortable that they have some ownership in the decision. They're not being forced to do something they don't want. And uh, you can ultimately kind of find something that's going to be sustainable for them long term, too, because. I think one thing that that I've recognized over the course of my running career is there is a pretty wide range of dietary habits by people and what is sustainable for one person to stick to may not be for the other. So, I mean, I could have like the perfect nutritional strategy for 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 a specific type of person or a specific type of athlete and that could be great on paper, but if I try to program that in with someone who it's not sustainable for for whatever reason, you know, we're not going to get to where we want to be long-term and I'm, and we're, I'm looking for long-term improvement versus just, you know, okay, let's have a really good race in this six month period. And then whatever happens after that is, is, uh, you know, you know, not my problem, kind of a mindset. All right. So, uh, next question is from Tom. Tom actually had a really good email with a real detailed kind of two part question. And uh, kind of like the training intensity stuff, I could probably do like a full show on each one of his podcasts if I really wanted to get into the weeds on some of this stuff. And these might be topics that we address in full shows down the road, depending on kind of where, where the interest is with it and things like that. But um, I'm going to give kind of a little more of a concise answer to this one for this particular episode. So Tom has an idea of kind of where my thoughts are on this. And then maybe if, if a bunch of people decide like, Hey, I'd love for you to dive deeper into either one of those. And we can probably look at that down the road a bit. So first part of Tom's question is how does your training differ from a hundred miles to 50 miles? Um, Tom sent this question over in reference to, uh, the podcast I did that I think it was two twelve, if I'm not mistaken, where I just kind of outlined in fairly high detail kind of like what I do throughout the course of a hundred mile training buildup in terms of how I structure my training, like how I place certain workouts, order of operations and why. And his question essentially was, that's great for a hundred miles. Now what do you do for 50 miles? So um, there's a couple of ways to answer this. I think the first one is kind of the big picture. So like, what am I, what am I doing with any difference in, in race distance or race environment? And the big guide guiding thing here is I want to stick to this principle where I'm doing the things that are most specific to the race day intensity and the race day environment closer to the race. So what this likely means in my actual training program is when I get about maybe like six weeks out from when I would start to taper or scale back and start to kind of rest and recover for the event itself in that last like six weeks or so, I want to be doing things 
as specifically to what I'm going to be doing on race day as I possibly can. That's going to be my kind of progress monitoring thing. That's the thing I'm going to be trying to build more volume at, build more exposure at, and really fine tune. So the big difference between 100 miles and 50 miles for me is going to be that six-week block. So when I look at the intensity at which I would do for a 50-miler versus a 100-miler, that's what's going to differ. So like for a 100-mile, I might have a structure in that last six weeks where I'm doing like on Saturday, Sunday, back-to-back long runs. I might be targeting, say, between those two days, I'm going to try to run eight to 10 hours at the intensity I plan on doing for that 100 miles, which for me tends to be like just below and at brief points during right up to my aerobic threshold. For 50 miles now, 50 miles is going to be a little different because um, first of all, I probably don't need to block eight to 10 hours for my long run stimulus for a 50 mile race in most cases. Um, some people do, some you can, if it's a really mountainous 50 miler, it may benefit to do that just because you're going to be probably working on a much wider variety of mechanical things from power hiking to downhill running to rolling hills to maybe flat trail periodically. There's a lot more variance in that and it may benefit you to spend a little more time on feet practicing those different mechanics. And since they tend to be a little lower impact, especially with like the uphill stuff and the variance tends to kind of spread out the workload a little bit, you may be able to spend a little more overall volume doing those versus say a 50 miler where it's pancake flat or on the track or something like that, where my mechanics are going to be almost identical all day long if things go well, in which case my relative volume may be lower on race day from a time standpoint. Uh, so I'm going to want to kind of keep that type of stuff in mind. So for 50 miles, the big variance is just going to be the intensity of that. So for me, 50 miles is kind of a little bit close. It's like, it's for me, it's basically smack dab on aerobic threshold for the most part, give or take. So I'm probably going to be trying to be right at aerobic threshold and maybe depending on the race, there could be a race where there's like competition and you're in a position where you have to like respond to moves and things like that, where I'll flex above aerobic threshold to stay with a pack. Uh, a good example, this would be like world hundred K championships where, um, you know, the, you don't, you don't necessarily want to get out too fast where you're giving back extra time at the end, but you also, from a psychological standpoint, you want to keep contact with like the group of people who you plan to finish near or around too. So you don't kind of lose that, that, uh, um, advantage of running with a pack versus trying to run out in no man's land. Um, but yeah, so the intensity is going to be just kind of at aerobic threshold, maybe brief periods above that from what I've had for 50 miles before. So that's the intensity I'm going to be focusing on those last six weeks a little more, a little more closely in terms of what I would do before that, I'm still going to follow the principle where I'm going to be doing, I'm going to have that aerobic foundation fully developed. Once that's there, I'm going to start moving into kind of more of a periodized looking schedule where I'm going to be focusing on things that are least specific to race day first, and then moving towards more specific things. So in that context, least specific is still probably going to be those short intervals. Um, for me, I'll, sometimes I'll do like a primer where I'm doing uh, almost like overspeed training where I'm doing some like hill bounds or 30 to maybe even 60 second, like short intervals uh, to just kind of get my body primed for what is of a higher intensity space during my training. But ultimately, when I get into the thick of that system, I'm going to be doing what you probably consider like a VO2 max system of training or a system of training that's going to be kind of, if you remember what I talked about in the beginning of the podcast with those, those kind of three categories or three systems, it's going to be to the right of that anaerobic threshold line. Uh, so it's going to be well into that third block. And I'm targeting intervals probably of two to four minutes in that frame range. And what I'm looking for there is 
for like my, my pace at those intervals to improve over time, as well as my volume per week of the number of them I can do to also increase. So it's one way to maybe think about that is like, if I'm adding more volume at the same intensity, I'm able to handle a larger amount of work at that intensity or at that pace. Um, but if, I, if things are going really well, I'll be able to add a little bit of volume to the number of intervals I do their work. And I'm also seeing a reduction in uh, the pace at which I'm doing those at. So for like a three minute, maybe the first time I do it, I finish just shy of a kilometer, but by the end I'm going just past a kilometer. So then I know like that same intensity, that same time period is giving me, I'm, I'm traveling further. So I'm getting more efficient, I'm getting more developed in it. And you know, since that intensity is pretty foreign to both the 50 mile and hundred miles, it's probably something I'm going to start with earlier in the plan and then move into something that's targeting, uh, kind of closer to that anaerobic threshold, which is still higher intensity than race day for both the 50 mile and the hundred mile. Um, I might keep some of that in, I might blend a little more in a 50 mile than a hundred with a hundred. It's getting so long where I, I actually think it's for me anyway, um, I like to kind of compartmentalize a little more of the systems I'm addressing. So I kind of address one system, move to the next, which you'll kind of get a feel for if you listen to my hundred mile outline with the 50 mile, or I might do a little more blending of say like the lactic threshold or anaerobic threshold system. As I move into kind of that race day specific intensity, I might keep that drawn out a little bit longer, uh, just cause it's, it's a little closer to 50 mile intensity than say hundred mile intensity for that. Um, next part of Tom's question is broadly, what is your nutrition strategy for training and racing? Um, this is a good question. I think we've talked about this a little bit, but maybe not like a very deep dive into it. Um, in the past, I think most folks who've listened to this podcast recognize that I follow a high carb or a high fat, low carb diet. And, um, where I range within that kind of more broad definition will depend on what kind of workouts I'm doing. So the way I've explained it historically is I've tried to explain that like there's parts of my training where I'm flexing my carbohydrates up to this percentage of my intake. And then there's portions of my training where I'm scaling my carbohydrates down to this percentage of my intake. And uh, the reason I do that is so people can kind of have an idea of the scope between maybe my highest intensity training blocks compared to like off season where I'm doing very little running, if any, sometimes, or base building phase where I'm doing a fair bit of running, but I'm putting a pretty big limiter on how fast I go at any given time. Or, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll do like a training block where higher intensity stuff is the primary focus. So I'm scaling back on volume, you know, so I might not be diving as deep into my muscle glycogen just from the relative reduction in the time spent out there. Um, as well. So there's a lot of like kind of nuance that, that helps me determine where I fit in the ranges I do. But generally speaking, I'm usually between say like 5% of my intake coming from carbohydrate and very rarely, but on, on some occasions I'll push up to maybe 30%, but more often than not, it's probably around 20% and 10% is kind of where I'm floating around just uh, on average. And the way I determine it is essentially I let my workouts be my guide. Like for, for me, I've done this long enough now where I can kind of tell, like if I go out and do a workout and uh, you know, I, I have been staying too close to kind of a stricter ketogenic diet um, closer to that 5% carbohydrate range that I described as kind of like the lower end of what I'll usually do during the season. 
and then I, I kind of know, okay, I need to bring back a little carbohydrate in order to be able to defend muscle glycogen enough during my training blocks in order to execute the amount of workouts I want to do to get ready for it. And from, from just playing around with different levels, I've kind of begun, begun to recognize for me, like at what point can I still execute the workout um, and not have to add any extra carbohydrates to what I'm doing. And that usually comes into around that 20 rarely, but sometimes up to 30% of my intake. So that might be a point in training where my volume's relatively high. So I'm above hundred miles per week and I'm focusing on doing a couple workouts that are going to be kind of at anaerobic lactic threshold or above. Um, or I'm doing like, let's say I was, let's say I was going to do a race where my intensity was going to be like heavily kind of in that gray area, that middle section where it's kind of between your anaerobic threshold and your lactic threshold. Um, or your, I'm sorry, your aerobic threshold and your anaerobic threshold. And, uh, you know, that area is kind of an interesting one to me personally, because I think it's like, it's fast enough where you're definitely going to be dipping into your glycogen stores, but it's also slow enough where if you're really fit, you can do it for a long time relative to what you'd be able to do if like you weren't in shape or weren't ready for your, or if you're from a, just a different sport in general. So you're not, uh, endurance specific in shape. So you kind of put yourself in this position where you can take a huge chunk out of your muscle glycogen uh, with any one workout, essentially, but the speed at which you can replace it without introducing carbohydrate isn't fast enough to have you ready for when you would normally be ready for the next workout. And you kind of sacrifice the amount of volume you can spend at the intensity you're trying to target by trying to say, stay too close to a strict ketogenic diet. Um, or like a zero carb diet or something like that. And that's just my personal experience within it. Um, I think the, the real decider there is uh, going to be context of race day. So, you know, you get these guys like Mike McKnight, who's focusing on really long races, like 200 plus miles. Um, in fact, Mike's actually gearing up to do the Colorado trail. It was around like 500 miles from Durango up to Denver. And, uh, you know, some, for something like that, and for someone like Mike, who spent years following a relatively strict ketogenic diet, you know, at that low intensity, he might benefit from staying that low because for him, like high fat oxidation rates may work to his advantage over any relative compromise that does to his ability to take in an exogenous carbohydrate source. Since I mean, he's running 500 miles, and he's been, knowing Mike, he's going to try to sleep as little as possible. So he'll probably sleep like an hour or two the entire time. But um, we'll have to have him back on and talk about that when he, when he gets when he gets done with that, you know, it'd be fun to, to see how things went and how he prepared for it and how that maybe differs from what, from what I do from a nutrition training strategy. So, so for me, basically, generally speaking off seasons, I'm going to be down to that kind of classic keto. I might even do some days where I'm zero carb. Um, last year in 2019, I was playing around with, uh, some of the carnivore approach just to kind of see how I felt on it. Um, for those who've listened to a bunch of podcasts, you'll probably remember, I haven't really pushed past about two weeks of that, but um, that time frame where I'm not focused on any type of training, focus more on recoveries when I'm going to be very low classic keto or below carbohydrate. Once I kind of get into training, I'll let that flex up to maybe five upwards to 10% of my intake as I'm kind of building base mileage and things like that. Once I get into some specifics, like some of those short interval sessions, some of those tempo runs, which are right at kind of lactate threshold, anaerobic threshold type stuff. You know, those are where I might be between 10, 20%. And then, uh, you know, the occasional block where I have like this, this meeting of higher volume and some intensity still is where I would potentially like 
skew up to 30% every once in a while, just to make sure I have the, the fuel to hit some of those harder workouts in the context of a lot of volume. And then once I kind of get back to like race day intensities where that's my specific target for like a hundred miler, I might bring my carbs back down to that kind of 10 ish, uh, percent intake and then flex up to 20% on days where I'm really doing a lot of volume, like back-to-back -back long runs uh, and things like that. So that's kind of like the general outline and kind of operating in that, that range, depending on what, what's on the table for training and kind of what's worked for me in the past. Ultimately, I'm always using workout results and things as my guide. So if workouts aren't going well, then I'm not doing something right and I need to address things. And, and that's essentially how I've whittled it down to what I do do is from experience with that. I've done... I've done that structure of macronutrients uh, for almost 10 years, but within that 10 years, I've, I've supplied that my macronutrient ratio with just a pretty wide variety of stuff from like nearly plant-based. I've never tried full vegan, uh, probably never will, but um, I've gotten very close to where I was eating like very little to no animal products and still in the low carb, high fat category within those kind of ranges I just described, but focusing mostly on plant material all the way to where last year in 2019, I did some phases where I was doing mostly animal products. And then I've done everything in between too, kind of along the way. So, you know, for me personally, I tend to blend them a bit. Uh, I think there are certain things that animal products are very superior to, and there's certain things that plant products have that animal products don't or have in um, more dense, uh, dense, uh, quantity then. So I'll, I, I will lean on those a bit for those things. Um, that's just kind of what's worked, worked well for me historically and, uh, and currently. So it's kind of what, what I stick to, but, um, I think that does it for questions for now. Like I said, in the beginning, if you have any, um, questions that you'd like me to answer either based off of these or completely different ones, definitely shoot them to me at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Uh, otherwise, uh, stay tuned for our next guest. Hey folks, Human Performance Outliers Podcast is growing. And due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please consider checking out my website at zachbitter.com or my social media channels at zachbitter on Instagram, at zbitter on Twitter, and at zach.bitter on Facebook. You can also support the show by subscribing and leaving a review on your favorite podcast platform. If you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to send me an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.